The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This evening is, the, is to continue the Eightfold Path series that I've been doing. And today's topic is Right Livelihood. And Right Livelihood is a... The issue of livelihood, independent of being right, is a hugely big topic for some people. And some people, it's a big challenge in their lives. And finding livelihood, finding what the right livelihood is for them, is um, people spend years sometimes you know, trying different things, trying to figure out, not being able to find something, um, and then having it available. Many years ago, I was at a conference, I kind of participated in a small con- conference with uh, some Buddhist teachers on the issue of ethics. And um, Yusilananda, who was a wonderful Burmese monk who lived in the Bay Area for many years, he was at this conference. And, and a part of the, at some point there was a panel discussion where the teachers who were there uh, were asked the question, what is the bi- biggest ethical challenge you've ever had or, uh, ever, as, a, as a teacher? Something like that. Maybe it was not ever, but what's your big? What's the big challenge you have? Ethical challenge. And Yusilananda immediately said that his biggest ethical challenge is that um, he, you know, he's a, he was not only was he a monk, but he was also kind of like the parish priest for a large uh, Burmese community in the Bay Area, and they would come for him for consultation for advice. And uh, back then, especially this is 1990, the um, the, uh, what he said, uh, the, the Burmese immigrants who come to this country sometimes have a hard time finding work. And they have a family to take care of and support. And some of them find work down in the San Jose area in, in industries that have to do with um, um, making weapons. I believe back then there was a company down there. He, he, he gave the impression there's a company down there that makes tanks. Is that true? Still true? Bradley Tanks or something in San Jose? Is that right? What? Maybe United Defense. United Defense. So anyway, so anyway, so they, they, so some of the Burmese get jobs at places like that. He said, and they come to him and ask, "Is this right livelihood?" And his biggest ethical challenge is what to tell them, because as a Buddhist who's steeped in the Buddhist kind of traditional teachings, he's very clear that that's wrong livelihood to be making weapons, to be involved in the manufacture of weapons. But he knows how hard it is to find work. And, uh, and they have families to support, so he doesn't quite, you know, he doesn't want to tell them that you know, it's wrong livelihood because that causes a whole bunch of suffering as well. So that was interesting, you know, that the issue of livelihood was, uh, you know, for him one of the difficult areas of being a teacher. The um, and then there was another uh, a friend of mine who worked for a machinist shop. He was a, uh, down in San Jose area. And the machine shop, I guess, made specialty kind of machine work that they made or something. And um, there was a foreign government who needed a special part for fighter jets. And that they, ha- they were going to make, you know, hand make, or I don't know how they make it there. They were going to make it in this specialty machine shop. And it came, uh, it came the order came by him. And uh, so he went to his boss and he said, I can't do this. And his boss said, okay, you don't have to. So that was nice. The machine shop still made it, but he wasn't involved in doing it. 
So, you know, examples of people who are dealing with the ethical aspect of right livelihood. And generally in Buddhism, when they talk about right livelihood, uh, that's what the emphasis is, the ethical aspect of it. And there's some very clear teachings. If you think that Buddhism or Buddhist teachers like me sometimes are kind of, it's all relative and you have to look at it from different sides, it's like this and that, and it's all okay or something. Uh, it's unequivocal about what the Buddha said about right livelihood or, or, or what's wrong livelihood. So um, he said, um, wrong livelihood, so he said, don't do these things. Don't be involved in the manufacture of weapons. Don't be involved in the trade of living beings, which means prostitution and animals for slaughter. Don't be involved in uh, the trade of intoxicants. Don't be involved in the trade of poisons. I think he meant poisons for human beings. I don't know what... And it's number five. So, um, uh, so weapons... Oh, anything involved in, um, in uh, killing, killing, killing any beings at all. So it's kind of clear. You don't do these things. But then it's also Buddhist teachers in the West who try to then to apply this or talk about this are very quick to say, well, it gets complicated because there's companies we work for do all kinds of things and places we invest in and, you know, it's kind of mixed, mixed what they do. And so how do you know and where do you draw the line of when it seems unethical and when it's not? Um, and so one of the ways I like to look at it is uh, do we do work that uh, is good for our conscience? We have a conscience, hopefully, to care for. And uh, if we look at the, if we rely on the conscience, if we're sensitive to our ethical sensitivity, then, um, and really take in what we're doing in that field of ethical sensitivity, do we feel good about it? Do, and if we don't feel good about it, then perhaps it's time to consider some, something. I remember this famous story I've told many times now, a little story of, of a man who came to a, I was sitting in on interviews. I was a teacher in training. So I was learning how to be a teacher by watching a teacher in action. And um, this man came in and said, in my field of business, uh, I'm expected to lie. And so, the, and he, so then he asked the teacher, expecting to be told how to do this, uh, now how can I do my job and lie at the same time? And the teacher said, you can't. No, he said, how can I uh, be a good Buddhist and lie at the same time? And, um, and, the, and the Buddha, that Buddhist teacher was quite unequivocal, says, you can't. Um, and, this is, and this teacher who said it uh, was one of the, was Christopher Titmus, who was one of the absolutely most liberal uh, Buddhist teachers in the our scene that I know, um, most permissive. But he was very clear, no, you can't be a Buddhist, a good Buddhist, uh, and if you're involved in a profession that inv- involves lying. So, the, you know, two simple kind of ethical guidelines that I think I like to fall back on is not particular rules, but rather the issue of the conscience. You know, how is it for your conscience what you do? And the second is, um, does it harm people? Does it cause harm? And that, over and over again, that's the Buddhist ethical uh, kind of foundation, is does this cause harm? Then there's a little higher order that the person can consider, and that is, does it cause benefit? Is it beneficial? And uh, I would like to believe that the right livelihood is one that brings benefit to ourselves and the world around us. And so how does it bring benefit? 
So in terms of the world around us, you know, it improves people's lives in some way or other. And so we feel like we're making a difference in the world. And that there's a you know, tremendous range of what that can be. Um, and it might not be have to, anything to do with what we do, but how we do it. I think that uh, one of the neuroses, or that I've, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, sources of suffering for people I've seen in this area is people who feel like there has to be the career and they have to find the career, that this is their career, like the thing that they're going to do. And some people do find the thing that they like to do and it's like, it fits who they are. But as, uh, from what I can tell, I think that for some people, um, that's not in the cards. There isn't like the, the career, the thing. And it's a form of suffering to assume that there should be. It's kind of, you know, and some people struggle to try to fit into this idea that there should be. Um, and for some people, what's important is not uh, what they do, but how they do it. And so it's how they do the work is where the definition of right livelihood comes in. And they might do something which maybe in some kind of way doesn't seem to be dramatically beneficial for the world, but um, they do it in such a way that it makes a difference for the people they encounter. They make a difference for their co-workers, they make a difference for the people they encounter and part of makes their life better. They express their kindness or their care or their friendliness or their compassion or something. And some people find uh, that how is the very, is, becomes the really important foundation of their work. And they work, do it, a, maybe I've known people who've worked in places that have very, very little status in our kind of general culture here and um, low-paying work, but have been extremely happy. And, uh, and the way they do their work is full of dignity and, and generosity and compassion for the people around them. And I've been inspired by these people and how they, how they do. And they seem very content and happy with how they do their work uh, rather than what they're doing. So is, is the work we're doing beneficial for the world? And is it beneficial for ourselves? And, and because this right livelihood is an issue that's part of the Eightfold Path, it's part of the. Uh, it's it's of interest not as an ethical uh, norm that thou shalt, but rather it's of interest about people who want to become liberated, become free. And um, if what you want is free the heart, not have the heart constricted, tight. If you want to have the heart not afraid, if you want to have the heart not struggle, um, uh, weighed down by anything, then and you want to be liberated then these eight steps are ways to help you do that. And now in this topic of right livelihood, then uh, uh, is the the question or the quest, how is it that the livelihood I I have supports uh, that movement of liberation and freedom? And so in that sense, it becomes, um, you know, uh, is it good for my practice? Is it good for my heart? Is it good for the liberation and freedom that I have? And here also, I think, um, there's a two questions of what, do you, what is done, the job, and how it's done. So is it a job that nourishes you, or is it a job that you find no nourishment at all from it, but it just gives you a paycheck that, you know, you get by? And, um, and I know some people who would never put up with a job that was only for a paycheck. Um, and uh, I think some, I know people for whom they'd rather be poor and homeless then uh, put up with a job that just seems makes them miserable. And other people, I mean, because they have family they have to care for, they maybe feel like they have no choice but to take a job that has very little meaning and um, doesn't nourish them, but they're trying to take care of their family.
But is there, is there, if there's a possibility to consider finding work that's nourishing, that's meaningful, that's inspiring, that brings joy and delight, I think it's very important. It's interesting that the Buddha uh, talked about uh, four kinds of happiness that a lay person can have, a lay person who works. And um, the first is um, the, um, the happiness of economic security. The second is the happiness of gaining wealth that is legally or lawfully acquired. And, uh, and here the idea is gaining wealth. It isn't just like make enough money to get by, um, but um, it's considered in the ancient world, time of the Buddha, quite fine and a happy thing to become wealthy, <laughs> provided it was lawfully acquired. Now remember, this is before Marx, so the Buddha had a, diff- a different, different analysis of maybe, or we have a different one now. And so, um, so that was, uh, and then um, is it um, the happiness of being free from debt is uh, considered one of, the, one of the four kinds of happiness. And the happiness of doing uh, work that's blameless. So there's no, no one can blame you. You don't feel any kind of remorse or, or criticism for the kind of work you do. So those are the four kinds of happiness for a layperson who works. And the issue of debt, of course, is interesting here in America. Free of debt. They didn't have mortgages and credit cards in the Buddha's time. So, you know, the chances of... It wasn't, so, it wasn't you know, maybe it's easy to get into debt. They were so well supported by society. Please, go into debt. There was a... Uh, Ajahn Amaro was, was an English... was a Theravadan monk ordained in Thailand who lived in the Bay Area for many years. And uh, when it, early, when he first came to visit, was visiting San Francisco, someone took him on a tour of the San Francisco Financial District and was giving, he was from England, right? So, and he'd been a monk for many years and living in Thailand. And so the man was telling him about the American economic system and how it all works. And at some point, um, uh, the man said to uh, the monk, uh, uh, you're more wealthy than most people in America. And Ajahn Amaro was kind of stunned to hear that. What do you mean? I'm a renunciant. I've given away all my money. I don't have any money. I'm not allowed to handle money. Uh, you know, I'm allowed to have a bowl. The, once a day, the food that goes in the bowl, my robes, and a place, you know, a roof over my head. That's all I'm allowed to have. I don't, I don't have any money. And the man said, yes, but uh, you're not in debt. <laughs> And uh, most people in America, I guess, are, are in debt in some way or other. So the happiness of being free from debt is a nice happiness. So why I mention this is that um, uh, some people, there, there was a tenet, I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be true, especially when there were all those us hippies that came into Buddhism, that uh, there was kind of a, a negative view towards money and earning money. And uh, kind of money is evil was kind of like the hippie, almost kind of thing. And, um, and, uh, and so there's kind of a negative... And also because the monastics, some of the monastics we know, Buddhist monastics, don't handle money, it lends itself to the idea, oh, money, something's wrong with money. But the monastics who don't handle money never say that. It just, that's just the rule I live by. <laughs> and, um, and, um, but in fact, so the Buddha actually uh, uh, referred to as a form of happiness the happiness of economic security, wealth, uh, wealth uh, lawfully gained, being free of debt, 
and doing work which is blameless. So that's kind of nice. So how do we do that? How do we find that? Um, and so what is the kind of work that nourishes us, supports us, help us, helps us in our spiritual practice? How do we, or how do we do our work so it helps us in our spiritual practice? One of the things I learned from uh, working at the Zen monasteries, Zen monasteries you do a lot of work, it's part of the spiritual practice, is um, I learned to do things wholeheartedly. You kind of, when you do something, you're supposed to kind of put yourself completely in it. And, um, and so it took a while for me to learn that. I was kind of like, I didn't want to do it, or I can't believe I'm doing this, and I wish I had the other job, and you know, all kinds of resistance. But you know, I would do my best and put myself into it. And I learned a certain kind of way of being wholehearted in what I did. And what I discovered in the wholeheartedness that there were, it depended a little bit on the job I was doing, but um, there was a way in which doing something wholeheartedly, being fully there for the job, and, and not, any, not anywhere else in the mind, that my mind got um, uh, really still. And so I would end, I would end my work feeling uh, more still and more centered, more calm than when I started. Or in the monastery, sometimes I would go directly, you know, in terms of minutes between working like in the kitchen, wholeheartedly, kitchen works, very physical, and then going into the meditation hall to sit. And usually I would show up just as they closed the doors. So literally, the last minute, and I would sit down and my mind would be completely still and very focused. And, um, and there I was because of the way I worked. And I've worked, done work where I've, you know, been had doubt about what I was doing. I was anxious about what I was doing. I was kind of scattered in what I was doing and all kinds of, you know, things. And then I went to meditate and guess what? <laughs> I carried that with me into the meditation. So the idea of kind of putting yourself in fully into what you're doing, I think, is a beautiful thing. Um, so how we do it, how does it support our practice? Sometimes in the mindfulness scene that we do here, I think we put too much emphasis on mindfulness um, because sometimes, in overemphasizing mindfulness, sometimes it's a little bit removed and slow and kind of a little bit too kind of, kind of um, disconnected from what you're doing, what we're doing. And uh, so one of the blessings for benefits for me from being a, a Zen practitioner is where they emphasize wholeheartedness, was there the emphasis was not so much being mindful, but participating fully in what you did. And so, and so in some situations, I still find to this day that that's a wonderful guide for how to practice in situation, is how to participate fully. And uh, mindfulness comes along with participation, to be really there completely. The last thing I want to say about this livelihood issue is um, I hope that this talk is not a talk about what you should and shouldn't do exactly, but rather a talk that encourages, encourages you to reflect carefully and deeply about something as important as livelihood, whatever the livelihood is, whether you, whatever kind of the primary way in which you are supported and support others in terms of work that to really consider carefully. It's very important. What you do for the many hours a day is a very important thing. It's not incidental. Some people who work eight hours a day or some around here more hours a day, 40 hours a week, hundreds of hours a year, that's a huge chunk of our, of our, uh, of our life that goes into it. 
And it's well worth considering how to do it in such a way that the work itself is meaningful for what we want our life to be most be about. And uh, both how we do it and what we do. And so to do that as a reflection, to think about that, and to one of the, you know, and to kind of not not go along and year after year uh, doing a job that we're not really doesn't really support us or is not meaningful, just because we're afraid to change, or just because we're lazy to change. Our life is very important, and it's important to be able to have a life which supports us and nourishes us and is meaningful in a way. Um, for this heart of ours. So one question that some people benefit from is to ask the question around work, livelihood, is uh, if you were not afraid, what would you do? If you were not afraid, what would you do? Another interesting question is... um, if you won the lottery, what would you do? What kind of work would you do? And it's interesting if you say, well, if I won the lottery, I'd be free of work once and for all. I wouldn't work. But is that really nourishing? Go to the golf course, the beach, hang out, get a yacht, take a yoga class, or whatever. You know, is it, you know what, what is really meaningful and nourishing? What do you really want to do with your life? It's a wonderful life that you have. So those are my thoughts about right livelihood. And now we have about 15 minutes, so if anybody would like to ask questions or give testimonials. (laughs) Maybe to Victor here, who likes oatmeal. I have a question as to do you think the Buddha would have said about uh, the flip side of <clears throat> of work, and that would be consumption? You work in order to... Oh, yeah, Cons- how we consume. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Um, I suppose uh, nowadays he would say that, right consumption. I suppose that fits into the category of right action. Maybe. you know, Right consumption usually has the side of uh, not causing harm in how we consume, how we, things we use. And so the right action is based, again, with not harming. Yes, here, can you move the mic in the front? The old uh, Persian uh, king uh, Cyrus, uh, they wrote a book about him, I think one of the, from Greece, Wrote a, it's called The Education of Cyrus. Uh-huh. And in that book it says that uh, um, he, they, they, had, they, they were doing agriculture. Then they have to plant and they have to have land. Then to keep their land so that they can um, generate food, but they have, to, they have to be able to defend their land. Mm. Then uh, if you have land and you have to defend the land and let's say at that point if you make arms to defend the land is that good right right livelihood or it's not you're asking me (laughs) 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 so is it right livelihood to make arms to defend your land um is a 
is there a time, kind of a variation of that, a more dramatic variation, is there, is there a time to uh, engage in military combat? Is there a time to, to get a weapon and fight, um, to defend yourself? Uh, is, a, is a moral dilemma that many people have faced. And I, don't have, I, I prefer not to give an answer to that. That's direct. But uh, my preferred way of answering these questions is that it's because many people are very quick to defend their right to defend themselves and to go get the arms. And um, uh, I'd like to see people answer that question after they've trained themselves in how to uh, deal with conflict without fighting. And uh, many years ago here in Palo Alto, a woman said to me, I have to park at night in Palo Alto sometimes and I'm afraid, so I'm thinking of getting a gun. And uh, what do you think? (laughs) And I didn't tell her what I thought (laughs) because I didn't think in my role that was my place to tell her what I thought. But what I said, you know, in English when we say what I really thought, right? But what I told her was that um, uh, before getting a gun, I hope that you would train yourself in nonviolent defense and, uh, and learn, learn the skills of defending yourself nonviolently in a variety of ways um, so that you at least have that as support. And then you might consider whether you need a gun or how you're going to use a gun. But if your first line of defense is getting a gun, um, you know, then you're much more likely to get in trouble or cause trouble or cause harm. But if you learn other ways first, so are there other ways and, um, and to defend a nation, defend, defend your land? And, um, and there are countries who have made that, that choice to do that. Like Costa Rica has no military. And maybe it has no enemies so much around it, but it's quite impressive to do that, to not have a military. And uh, we've had beautiful examples in our world in the last hundred years or so, uh, very uh, uh, significant examples of people who use nonviolence to uh, fight for freedom and independence. And in a sense, Gandhi, who just wore, you know, just wore, you know, a white diaper, you know, seemingly, sorry, (laughs) loincloth, I couldn't come with the right word. (laughs) But I was trying to make a point, you know, he didn't have much, right? (laughs) You know, this little guy... Yeah, yeah. This this little guy is thin and wiry, and you know, and you know, he brought down the English Empire. Quite impressive. So, I I don't want to answer the question directly, but please consider the other alternatives first. Over here. I was wondering how this pertains to salespeople, because I remember one salesman telling me once, I was discussing this with him, that his job was to acquaint people with something they didn't really, they didn't know yet that they needed. (laughs) And that was his rationalization. And I've never done sales, but I've tried tried to persuade people by uh, points of view and so forth. And... um, I think it would be pretty hard to be a salesperson and not do a little bit of lying. Unless you totally believe 100% in your product. And I think most salespeople sell more than one product. 
Yeah. So, so right livelihood is also defined by, it's a, by right action, which is a step before. And so um, lying is clearly wrong action, so it would fit into wrong, wrong, wrong livelihood as well, to be lying as part of your career. And so that's, that's unequivocal, you know, you no lying. And, but then there's a kind of a little bit of a gray area about, about deceit and trickery and things like that. And so generally in Buddhism, um, deceit and trickery as a way of, you know, as a form of business, unless you're a magician, is, uh, you know, is considered not appropriate. Uh, gambling also is considered inappropriate in Buddhism. Um, so is fortune-telling as a career. Well, it seems very idealistic to me to say that because um, there are certain personalities who are... Fa- uh, salespeople have certain kind of personality. I'm in sales. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do, right? <laughs> and for some... Well, either that or entertainment. <laughs> I think that's asking a lot of somebody to... If that is their love... Selling, yeah. Even if they don't believe in their product, I've known people who've been salespeople who uh, I think were impeccable in their honesty. They believed in the product. They had a really good product that was useful for people. They believed in it, and they believed they were uh, contributing to the world through their product. Um, I think it's. I can think it's a beautifully honorable career to be a salesperson, uh, or it can be done honorably, uh, and it can be done dishonorably. I bought a. You know, I I had. A salesman tell me all kinds of things when I bought my cell phone, and I and and I, you know include, include a special deal I was going to get, and and uh, and then when I, you know, he clearly had lied, and then when I tried to follow up, um, there was no follow up. There was no phone call back or anything, and you know, it's, I mean, I don't know if he was lying. He could have just been forgetful, but uh, <laughs> you know, it was not a. It didn't feel good to me. So it does happen. You asked about a testimonial. <laughs> I can get that one. Um, I was on the fast track of uh, or chasing the rats and decided not to, that I wasn't happy at that. So I, about four months ago, I gave away, got rid of everything except for a, a $500 motorcycle that I bought. And I am a balloon artist and dance instructor, and I uh, packed up my saddlebags full of balloons and stuck my backpack and tent on the back of it and hit the road. So for the last four months, I've just been traveling around. And you support yourself with making your balloons? Twisting balloons, Fantastic. And one of the things that I found is that in letting go of all this, the more stuff I I got, the less happy I was because I had to work to support my stuff. <laughs> and I took my uh, rent and I divided it by 30 and figured, well, I could get a pretty good hotel for that. And uh, all I was doing was I was putting all my money into the building, and then, but I wasn't there. So it was like a very expensive storage space. <laughs> <laughs> so now when I'm out and about, yeah, I, I, I meet huge numbers of awesome people. Um, Miracles seem to happen. I know it's just like the whole world comes together to support me in ways that are just absolutely 
phenomenal. Great. And, um, yeah, sometimes I get a little cold but, uh, and a little bit of uncomfortableness, but I don't know anybody who doesn't in some form or another. And so as far as the sales thing's concerned, um, what I've found, I've done some sales, and what I've found is that if you don't, if you don't believe in what you're, do, what you're selling, find something that you do believe that you're in what you're selling. And because it is, as you mentioned, um, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And if you're staying in a business in which you're not enjoying it and you're, you're having to put your own ethics on the line, why be there? And by the way, that's the end of my story, but I, want, I, I wanted to tell you that you've been my teacher for the past seven years, and this is the first time I've ever seen you okay. <laughs> <laughs> through well, the podcast. It's great to have you. Welcome here. Thank you for your testimonial. It was lovely to hear, and a modern-day mendicant. <laughs> Beautiful. Renunciant. Okay. Well, so, um, um, you know, of, of all these the talks I've given now on the Eightfold Step, uh, I think for somehow this one I feel is the most tender because uh, it's so personal. I mean, the others are personal too, but there's something very poignant about livelihood and work and all that goes into it and there's a... The, you know, it's uh, it's not an easy area to explore, but it's a beautiful thing, and uh, I hope for those people who are who work or have livelihood, that uh, it becomes something that uh, is deeply meaningful and nourishing for yourself and the world, and if not because of what you do, then because of how you do it. So, thank you.